Hello, baseball fans, and welcome to Sully Baseball. This is the podcast where there is no offseason, and we talk about baseball 52 weeks out of the year, even during the wintertime when nobody's talking baseball, everyone's talking football. You come here, and we're talking baseball. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this on June 9th, 2017, on the campus of Palo Alto High School in Palo Alto, California, the birthplace of Oakland A's manager, Bob Melvin, and just a line drive, or I'm saying is really a line drive from Sunken Diamond, the baseball home of the Stanford Cardinal. Now, I know for a fact that Bob Melvin may have been born in Palo Alto, but he did not attend high school here. He attended high school at Menlo Atherton High School. Uh, I went to the Menlo School, which is a high school in Atherton, uh, and I remembered that he was, uh, that Bob Melvin was a graduate of that rival high school of ours, and he was, at the time, he was a catcher for the Giants when I was there. Now, he's the manager of the Oakland A's. Let me tell you what I'm doing here. There's a reason I'm here. I'm not just doping around. What am I doing? What am I skulking around uh, high schools for right now? Uh, my, my cousin Jack is currently trying out uh, for a bunch of, there's a bunch of coaches here. And my, my cousin Jack who's a, is a high school student uh, in who lives north of here, north, uh, I believe it's Marin County. I think that's what we call it. And he's trying to get a baseball scholarship, and he's a very good baseball player. And Stanford has uh, these sort of tournaments, invitations and everything that they have here. And kids come out, and they try out. And there's a bunch of coaches here. I'm looking over. There's a coach there from Ford, a coach there from uh, uh, Kansas, University of Kansas. And I think it's at Long Beach State. I'm not sure, but it looks it looks like that. But like a bunch of there, and they're all... Writing their, writing their little scout stuff here. And there's a bunch of high school-level kids here who I don't know if any of them are going to play professional. I don't know if any of them are going to play you know, in the major leagues or anything. But what they're trying to do is play well enough to have someone pick up the tab for them going to get their college degree. And, and I hope my Jack, my, my cousin Jack, is, uh, will be one of them. Uh, my cousin Jack had Tommy John surgery. He had that as a high schooler, so maybe he's getting that out of the way now. But the he's uh, he's trying out right now. So I'm not 100 percent sure how this works, but like from the best I could tell is like everyone gets like a certain amount of turns at bat, and everyone takes the field. Everyone, it's not like a game game, like they're not keeping score. But there are lots of people scribbling in those little notebooks and their radar guns out and. Yeah, I'll tell you something. What I'm, what I'm used to as a, a father is I'm used to fly ball to left field is probably a triple. And so there's been a bunch of times when guys have hit a fly ball to left field. Go, oh, there it is. And then you're like, oh, guy caught it, made a nice play, threw it right back. You can just tell. You can see how the ball snaps off of their arms. You can see how they feel their positions well. You know, it's good, solid, fundamental baseball that's being played here. So, so, yeah, I'm here. I'm, I'm cheering my cousin Jack on, and uh, who knows? Who knows? You know, there may be someone, unbeknownst to me, that I'm looking at who could go on and, and play professionally. The odds of that? I don't know. But you know, as we're approaching the break here, 
in the season of the major leagues, it's nice to know that baseball is going to go on, that baseball is a future. I, I say that, that baseball is a sport that probably even more than any exists in the past, present, and future all simultaneously. And you watch the games of the present, you honor the past, and then you come to a place like this and you're reminded that it has a pretty strong future. You know, this, uh, this weekend, hey, by the way, in case you can't tell, the field is right nearby the Caltrain's uh, tracks. I'm not going to cut that out. I'm outside. This is what happens when you do a podcast outside. Uh, if you've been following Sully Baseball, if you've been going to sullybaseball.com, if you've been following me on Twitter, you know that this is a special weekend for Sully Baseball, which is an, uh, an annual rite of passage, which is the In Memoriam video. And on Sunday the 9th, uh, I unveiled the, uh, the new In Memoriam video. And please go check it out. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, uh, it's, the, it's the pinned tweet on Twitter. Uh, I've also posted it on sullybaseball.com. I've posted it on MLB Reports. Uh, do me a favor. If you like it, uh, click on the YouTube link and share it. Share it via Twitter. Share it via Facebook or what, you know, how, whatever you do, put it in an email. You know, let's, I'm very proud of these. And I, and, I, and I take the time to make them something really memorable. And I try to make them different each year. I have a different music each year. There's different uh, sort of a mood for each video. And, you know, I, I, I've got some positive response. And so let's just, let's pass it around. I'd like to have, if there's anyone you know who knows and respects baseball history, as I'm here looking at the future to really honor the past, um, show it to them because I think they will enjoy it. And there's a lot of name, no matter what era of baseball fandom you are. You know, if you're an old timer, you'll see players from the St. Louis Browns and players from the All-American Professional Girls Baseball League, the league from League of Their Own from the Negro Leagues are still being honored on there. And I find it important to include them in the montage because there are fewer and fewer members of the Negro Leagues who are alive. There are fewer and fewer people who played in the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League who are still alive. And eventually there won't be any. There will be nobody left. And so while we can honor them or we can salute them, I think it's important that we do. And if you're a more recent baseball fan, there are players who you may remember from the 70s, from the 80s, from the 90s, from the 2000s, and even the 2010s, sadly. You know, the, we, I always try to have a big name at the top and a big name at the end. And there's a, there's a method to making one of the in-memoriam videos. It isn't just take a bunch of clips and, you know, here's a bunch of uh, uh, photographs and just line them up and put a piece of music on them. Yeah, I try to find a, a piece of music that fits the tone. You know, it, I always pick a piece of film music because that's what they use in the in-memoriam at the Academy Awards. Uh, I always try to have the first name and the last names be recognizable. Uh, the first time I did it, when it was really Rafael Rivera and I doing it, uh, well, the first name was Ralph Kiner, Hall of Famer, and the finale was Tony Gwynn, a Hall of Famer. Uh, the second time around, the first one was Minnie Minosa, who wasn't a Hall of Famer, was a really beloved player, 
and the last name was Ernie Banks. So you've kind of bookended a, a Chicago theme for that particular one. Last year, uh, I started off with Monty Irvin, and then I ended it with the one-two punch of Joe Garagiola and Yogi Berra, who, of course, were boyhood friends. And There was a couple of clips that I was able to use in that that bring up the fact that they're friends, that they're childhood friends, and they're that they were united in the Hall of Fame, and now they're united in death, as, as morbid as that may sound. And this year, uh, you know, I tried to do a similar thing. With the music each time, the first time I did it was the natural, and it just seemed, I, this is a completely unintended pun, but it seemed natural to use that. It's a baseball, it's a rousing score, one of the best film scores of all time by Randy Newman, and it was uh, a big, rousing, baseball-themed uh, orchestral score. And so that, that, was, a, that was an easy fit. Um, the second time around, I used the part of an Ennio Morricone, the great composer, for what he did as the end credits of The Untouchables. Now, that may seem like an unlikely pick, you know, a, a gangster film directed by Brian De Palma, um, I, whose lone connection to baseball was the scene when Al Capone was walking around the table with the baseball bat. But the end credits for that particular film had a very rousing and uplifting score. And I think it worked very well. There was, there was a couple of additional pieces in that like the fact that Dick Brashani, the former Red Sox executive, who was the husband of my first grade teacher I included in there, also included Oscar Tavares. Um, uh, last year, I used a piece from Field of Dreams, and actually, I used one piece of Field of Dreams, and I didn't didn't quite work, and I used another piece, and didn't, that didn't quite work, and so I actually edited them together. I kind of, I married them and found a couple of points where there's a cheer or a voiceover that kind of mask the, the edit. There's little tricks you learn when you're a video producer and you do a lot of editing. And this year, I was there was one piece of music that I was going to use, and then I decided at the last minute to change it. I decided that uh, the piece I was using was was a wonderful piece that I may wind up using next year, but it was a little too sad, which I know sounds counterintuitive because it's an in-memoriam video, and the piece from Field of Dreams that I used last year was had the intention of getting you being sad, and at the end, I wanted a lot of tears flowing down your face. Uh, because I felt that that with the death of Yogi Berra and the reuniting with Joe Garagiola, I think that called for kind of a sadder ending and a more traditional sort of pull the heartstrings ending. This time, I was looking at the people, I was looking at the kind of clips I was starting to pull, and even though this other piece of music is great and may work very well for next year's, I realized that I wanted the theme and the tone of this In Memoriam video to not be somber, to not be sadness, but rather to be a celebration. And a celebration that, yes, these people are gone, but how lucky are we that we had them? Yes, we will miss them, but isn't it wonderful that they were there 
and that their impact is still felt. As I was starting to pull clips, I realized that I needed a piece of music that was more uplifting and made us feel good about the memories rather than feeling sad about the loss. And I appeared on the podcast, The Rocketeer Minute, which is a minute-by-minute podcast of the movie The Rocketeer, which is a film that was not a huge success, but was a film that I really, really like a lot. And I realized that the end credits of that movie, The Rocketeer, the wonderfully underrated film, The Rocketeer, fit perfectly in what I wanted to do, the way it starts slowly and builds to this rousing finish. And I had to make a few edits, and I hid some of the edits and some of the points in the, in the video. But I was like, oh, this is working perfectly. And it gave me a new challenge for the ending of the, the video because I had, you know, I've studied all of the In Memoriam videos from the Academy Awards. And one of them, I remember, had a montage of the people, sort of the highlights. And it included Anthony Quinn. It included, I forget who it was. I know George Harrison. So they had some shots of him in Hard Day's Night and Help. But like it was, and, and I think, and Jack Lemmon. So there, it kind of like sort of a rapid fire of some of them to remind you, hey, you know, not everybody, but like, hey, you know, we say goodbye to the names and don't forget, here they are again, and let's just say goodbye. But it was to Zorba the Greek, because it was Anthony Quinn. So it was that little fast pace. Dun, 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 dun. So it was kind of rapid fire, and I remember feeling so good at the end of that, even though it's an in-memoriam where you're supposed to be in tears. And so the ending of the Rocketeer piece I used had a build-up that I thought, like, oh, I should edit something like that together, too. And it's funny that when you get a piece of music like that, you wind up in your mind listening to it over and over again, and you hear certain beats, and then you know the clips you're pulling. And there was one specific part of the soundtrack which goes, da da la da la da la da la and there was a clip I saw of Jordano Ventura, who tragically died in the off-season in a car accident. And I remember the clip was him getting a comebacker to the mound during the World Series. And I thought, that's where I should use that. That kind of almost fits perfectly. And so that was something that was planned out. And the ones that I, there were some points, there's also a clip of Paul Dade that you'll see and it's a clip of um, Jose Fernandez that you'll see that I had a very specific clip and a very specific point in the music. And those are, those are planned out. Those are, yes, those are married together. And when you first line them up, you put those into the in there and say, okay, I'm going to build up from there. Every once in a while, you get a really happy accident. Uh, I had Bob Serve, who was a former Kansas City A's and New York Yankees player, and I had image of him from the TV show Home Run Derby. And that was probably some of the best footage I could find of him. And there was a shot of him swinging the bat. And I realized if I cut it where he's swinging the bat and then we cut to Jordano Ventura, it looks like Bob Serve hit the ball to Jordano Ventura. And that was one of those things that I did not plan for. But once I saw it, I thought, like, oh, that's, that works. One of the sad things is that there's always way too many people to put in there. And so inevitably some people get, some people get pushed out. 
And I always try to make sure in my intro, I, I emphasize that these are some of the names. These are clearly not all of the names. Uh, I emphasize those who are former All-Stars, because this is All-Star Weekend, or All-Star Week, or whatever the hell it is. Uh, I try to emphasize players who have been part of world championship teams and have had real great highlights. I have Bob Kozava, who clinched two World Series for the New York Yankees as the final pitcher. And I have a clip of him uh, clinching the 1952 World Series. Uh, and then I try to find people who have their, like, there's been recent memories of them. Like, you know, Andy Marte died in a car crash the same day as Jordana Ventura. And so the, he was a relatively recent player. And then, then I also try to look for players who may have been lost in the cracks. As I said, members who were Negro Leaguers, people who uh, were part of the All-American Professional Girls Baseball League. I, I probably mixed that up. I made sure Steve Palermo was in there, the former umpire, because he was a great umpire, but also, you know, he was paralyzed because he tried to break up a robbery. A woman he didn't know was being robbed at a convenience store or someplace, and he tried to break up the robbery, and he got shot. And that's why he couldn't be an umpire, because he said he was never going to walk again. And he wound up, you know, walking with the help of a cane after a you know, long rehab, and, and he became one of the heads of the of the umpires but he was uh you know I, I had to include him because he's a wonderful man who did something really great I also had to include Bill Webb who is someone who you may not know who Bill Webb is but Bill Webb was a a brilliant television director who has directed the last what 15 20 something like that number of world series and all the great moments whether it's you know, the, the A-Rod slap, the, the, the cop jumping up and down in the bullpen, the 2011 World Series comeback, the, the George Bush throwing the first pitch in the 2001 World Series, the Aaron Boone home run, all these amazing moments and a lot of great moments for the Mets you know, during the 80s. And he basically designed and created and innovated when Fox took over Major League Baseball how games look and how games are covered. You go watch games for the last 20 some odd years and you go watch how they were covered beforehand and you'll see there's a lot of emphasis on you know, the, the emotion of the game and it being put together in a different way and, and that's all because of Bill Webb. And I felt it would be, as a television guy and as someone who loves sports media, you have to give tribute to those who did a great work like that, and Bill Webb is in there, and and so, you know, when you had, and then Jose Fernandez obviously was the one I was going to finish off with, uh, Jim Bunning was the one to start off with, I found Jimmy Pearsall and David Letterman, and that kind of showed that he was a player, and the type of person that Letterman would want to have on his show, you know, there's a lot of times you find clips that are wonderful clips that don't quite fit. You know, you can't quite fit in there. There's a great kind of heartbreaking clip of Jordano Ventura, you know, kind of sing-songing, we're going to the World Series, we're going to the World Series. That was wonderful, but just didn't fit. It, it's, it kind of put a, a you know, a, a wrench in the flow of it. Uh, and also, I had, when I had that 
clip of Ventura with the comeback, or he kind of does a little shimmy with his leg. I had the Joe Buck calls, Ventura with a little flair, but I realized it worked better if I didn't have that and I just played the music. There's a lot of things that on paper work great that in practice don't. I also really wanted to make sure I included Anthony Young and Ralph Branca, but that I included them with positivity. I showed, just showed Anthony Young on the mound and I showed Ralph Branca pitching. I made no reference to the shot heard around the world as Ralph Branca is best known for serving up one of the most famous home runs in the history of baseball. And Anthony Young is best known for going on a 27-game losing streak. But both of them showed us how to lose with dignity. Both of us showed us that they may have lost the game, but they weren't losers. The way they handled themselves, the way they handled themselves with the press, the way they handled themselves over the years, and embracing their role, and that when Anthony Young finally got his first win after 27 losses, that the, everyone cheered, and it was like it was like the Mets had won the World Series, and they mobbed him because he was so likable, and he was, had so much dignity and, and class. So the clips I show of Brank are, are, are of him pitching, nothing to do with the home run. And the clips I show of Anthony Young is him on the mound and also him being celebrated, his arms up in the air and being celebrated and hugged. And that was, for me, part of what this is. It's not always just about the winners. It's about the people who show us how to lose properly, too. And including them became a big part. So I took a risk by releasing it on Sunday. You know, if on Monday, you know, Willie Mays dies or something, I'm like, oh, boy, back to the drug board. But um, I hope not. I hope not. I don't want anyone to die. But people do die. It's part of life. It's part of moving forward, backwards. And, you know, I'm sitting here looking at the people who want to be, to replace some of the names that I just mentioned. That there is a present in baseball players. There's 25 on each team. That there's 30 major league teams and there's teams elsewhere as well. So who is going to fill in that present? Because those spots are available because the people of the past have moved on. And people here in the future, here in Palo Alto High School, are looking to be part of that same you know timeless quality that baseball has. You know, people have been predicting the death of baseball for decades before I was born. Decades. In the 60s, baseball was declared dead. In the Great Depression, baseball wasn't going to survive. Baseball wasn't going to survive the 1870s when players started getting paid. Baseball is always on the verge of dying and baseball always comes back because there's someone great who will take this place. And just a few years ago, oh, what will Yankees do without Jeter? Oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. There is a seven-year-old kid at Yankee Stadium who has no memory of Derek Jeter playing. He was, he was alive. He doesn't have any memory of it. He was playing with his Thomas trains or something. Who is now going to Yankee Stadium with number 99 on his back, yelling, screaming, for Aaron Judge. Derek Jeter might as well be Lou Gehrig. Might as well be Joe DiMaggio. It doesn't matter. 
that he only played a couple years before they started following baseball. If they were not playing when they started following, then they're ancient history. A player like Hank Aaron seems to me like he played in the Cretaceous period. It was so long before I started following baseball. I started really following, I mean, I started collecting baseball cards and everything in 78, and I really started following it closely in 79. Aaron was playing in 76. Willie Mays was playing in 73. Frank Robinson was playing, what, 75, 76? Brooks Robinson was playing in 77. It's not that much before I started following the game. And yet, to me, they are just, they are completely in the past. It's not, doesn't matter if it's distant past or near past, it's past. And so for someone who has no memory of Jeter, soon there'll be no memory of Ortiz for some of the young kids coming into Fenway Park. There are kids going to games at AT&T Park up the 101 from here who you're going to see kids like, I don't remember Tim Lincecum playing. They certainly don't remember Barry Bonds playing. That's the past because it's a present. And you'll have Aaron Judge. You'll have Mookie Betts. You know, you'll have, well, you, you would have Madison Baumgartner, but he broke his whatever on a dirt bike because he's a great pitcher but not exactly a Mensa candidate. So it seems almost apt that I'm here watching the future of baseball after making a video celebrating the past of baseball because that's really what the experience of being a fan truly is. It's those elements happening at the same time. By the way, I just want to say one thing before I get into this edition of the uh, teams that should have won. Is it just me, or has there been a lot of no-hitters that went into the ninth this year? I mean, it just doesn't it seem like there's a lot? I don't know why. It seems like there's been a... Uh, it, maybe it's just because there's been a few of them recently. But, you know, they had that game with the, the, the A's and the Braves uh, a couple weeks ago where it was... They got to the ninth inning and a no-hitter, and... It was broken up. And today you had a kid in, in Colorado, Freeland, pitched into the ninth inning before letting up a hit. And, you know, it just seems like there's a lot that are going deeper like, and, and, not, and not sealing the deal, not getting it done. Now, of course, this game was, uh, you know, a 10-0 final. And I maintain that if a player in the White Sox wanted to drop a bunt down, to get on base, that's his prerogative. That's his job. His job is not to give Freeland the time of his life. His job is to get on base and start a rally. And there's, if you have a problem with that, then I don't understand how you follow baseball. I really don't. But it just seems like there's a lot like that. I could be bananas. It wouldn't be the first time that I said something totally bananas. But... I'll leave it at that. Um, let's, let's, um, this is going to be a, not one of the longer of the weekly episodes. I'm going to do another episode after the uh, all-star break to sort of take stock in the season. Um, and I'm, I will have some news about the relaunch of the podcast. Uh, I've had to take care of some other things and put it on the back burner for a little bit. 
Uh, but this this will be we will have a relaunch at some point this month. Uh, the team I'm going to talk about the team that should have won. Let's talk Seattle. Let's talk the Seattle Mariners. I'm currently wearing a Washington State hat on my head, and because there's so many college coaches here, I guarantee you there's some kids here who think I'm recruiting for the Cougars, and let them, let them. But the Mariners are a team that have always been close to my heart. For some reason, I've had an affinity and a an attraction to the Seattle Mariners, and maybe part of it is part of it has to do with my love for the Pacific Northwest. But it, my affection for the Mariners started long before I ever stepped foot in the Pacific Northwest. It really, I was drawn to the Trident hats. I was drawn to the fact that they stunk, but they had a bunch of intriguing players. It was even before Ken Griffey. You know, I was drawn to the Alvin Davis and Jim Presley and Mark Langston and Mike Moore years, where they seemed like they are on the verge of putting it all together. It didn't quite work. And then Griffey, who became my favorite player in all of baseball. And then you had the amazing turn that happened in 95 when they went from never even coming close to contending to suddenly having that magical season. Now, the Mariners are in the longest playoff drought in baseball. And they are the only, Seattle is the only city to have never hosted a World Series as currently a Major League City. I phrase it like that because the city of Washington has hosted three World Series, but the Nationals have not. So Seattle doesn't have a lot of history to draw on. And all of their postseason experience is between, 2000, uh, between sorry, 1995 and 2001. They had nothing before that. They've had nothing since. And 2001 is not that recent. You don't believe me? Kids who were born in 2001 can drive. So think about that for a second. Using the rule of seven, there is not a single high school student in Seattle who has a memory of the Mariners in the postseason. But there are some years we can pull on from here. Now, the first and most obvious one is 1995, which was such a magical year because they went from being on the outskirts of a wildcard chase to having an absolute rampage the final month of the season to catch the California Angels, beat the California Angels in a one-game playoff with Randy Johnson throwing a complete game, falling down 0-2 to the Yankees only to come back and have a wild comeback in one of the greatest postseason series ever played in the division series in 1995, and taking a two-game-to-one lead on the heavily favored Cleveland Indians before finally running out of gas and the Indians were the superior team to Seattle that year. That was the first time the good folks of Seattle ever experienced postseason play. They got back in 1997 with a very good team but fell short, losing two Randy Johnson starts against Baltimore in the division series. They got back to the postseason in 2000, where they got to Game 6 of the ALCS against a Yankee team that stumbled in September, but ultimately found their way and wound up winning the World Series that year. And then, of course, there's 2001, where they won a record 116 games and had Ichiro Suzuki basically taking over for Alex Rodriguez. Rodriguez left, and suddenly the Mariners became an all-time team. 
only to face a possessed Yankees team needing to win a World Series in the wake of September 11th and making quick work of the Mariners in five games in the ALCS. There have been other years where they came close to a postseason appearance, but I'm going to stick to there because I think that we can find the team that should have won in that group. Now, 1995, well, the one I'm going to eliminate immediately is 2000. 2000, they blew the division on the final weekend of the series, of the season, to Oakland, only to advance past the Chicago White Sox in the division series on a walk-off hit by Carlos Guillen. Um, and then they, they wound up playing the Yankees, and it was a solid series, but they, they lost, and A-Rod was part of that. It was the end of A-Rod's time in Seattle. The Mariners are a strange organization when you consider almost you know, the entire prime of Ken Griffey Jr., the entire prime of Ichiro Suzuki, most of the prime of Randy Johnson, a gigantic prime of Alex Rodriguez. All the career of Edgar Martinez and, and of Felix Hernandez have been in Seattle. And yet, they've not even gone to Game 7 of the ALCS. That's a strange legacy. I'm going to eliminate 2,000 from the bunch. So that leaves us with 95, 97, and 2001. Now, the reason I'm going to eliminate 95 seems counterintuitive. But because that was the first year that they did it, and it was so magical and unexpected, that the people of Seattle almost treat that as if they won it anyway. It's almost like, man, they weren't expecting to get this far. This is amazing. Now, if they had won it all with that team, maybe that would have been nuts. But it almost would have been too much too fast. And there's, a, there's another element to which I'll bring up later. But I'm going to oddly eliminate 95 from that bunch. So that leaves us with 97 and 2001. And I really went back and forth between these two years. Now, why 2001? Why would that have been it? They're in Safeco Field. They have Ichiro. You have the narrative of Ichiro coming and changing the game, changing the Mariners. You still have a bunch of players left over. You still have Edgar Martinez. You still have Jay Buhner. You still have some players who you know from you know, classic Mariner years. And to win 116 games and then win it all would have been putting a Seattle Mariner team in a conversation of the greatest team of all time. And anytime you can do that for a franchise, especially one without the history of the Yankees, the Cardinals, the Tigers, and all of them, like how I mentioned with the Diamondbacks, the, the Rockies, and uh, the Rays, to be able to be mentioned in a constant conversation of greatness, I think, is important. But 2001 was a year, that was the year I had the Yankees should have won it all. And do you know what? Even though I'm a Red Sox fan, I rooted hard for the A's, I rooted hard for the Mariners, I rooted hard for the Diamondbacks. I understand the emotion of wanting to have a New York team win in the wake of what happened earlier that year. And there was something special and dramatic about having the World Series that year being played in New York. Having the World Series between Arizona and Seattle may have been great baseball. But in 2001, we got one of the great World Series of all time of which the emotion behind it and the quality of the play of the games made it that way. 
And I don't know if you would have had that if it was the Pacific Northwest against the desert. It was important for baseball to have that World Series. It was important for my sanity to have the Yankees not win it. So, by odd process of elimination, that gives us 1997. Now, stop and consider 97 why I'm picking that. They're in the kingdom, and there's something to that. There's something to winning in the place where you always lost. There's something about, hey, remember all those bad years we had here? Here's greatness here. It's why I wanted to see the White Sox win once in Comiskey. Why I wanted to see the Giants win one at Candlestick Park. To have one great memory in that dump and to say, look at us. We won in the same place where we stunk all those years. We've turned those memories around. Also, who won the World Series in 1997? The Marlins did. A rented, slapped-together team where the players weren't there the year before and they weren't there the year after and there was no fans the year before and there was no fans there the year after. It's a weird brigadoon that they just showed up one year as champions and were irrelevant during the parade. And the fiasco of seeing the team being broken up when everyone knew it was going to happen. And then it happened. It was like not even like they're not even going to get a chance to defend it. Really? This is a disgrace. And that's the team that gets to hoist the, the, the trophy. Oh, there were a lot of veterans on that team who won their only title. And I always feel good when you look up and say, hey, there's a bunch of people who were baseball lifers and won championship to their name with the Florida Marlins in 97. And I suppose that's cool for them. But for the franchise and for the history of baseball, the 97 World Championship almost doesn't exist. Now imagine if it was the Mariners. As I said, you win in the kingdom. As you said, for the fans who got a taste of it and the excitement for it in 95, can see it come to fruition in 97. But think about this as well for the legacy of that team. Who's on that team? Edgar Martinez is on that team. Cool. So is Jay Buhner. Great. So is uh, Jamie Moyer. Fantastic. He was also on that team. Randy Johnson. Ken Griffey Jr. And Alex Rodriguez. Now they were all on the 1995 teams as well, but A-Rod was a September call-up. A-Rod wasn't the regular shortstop yet. It was still, the infield was still Tino Martinez, Joey Cora, Luis Soho, and Mike Blowers. A-Rod wasn't starting yet. At this point, A-Rod was an elite player. He should have won the MVP the year before in 1996. But you have had the team with Griffey, who won the MVP that year. A-Rod, MVP quality player. Uh, you had Randy Johnson, who didn't win the Cy Young Award that year, but, but had a strong argument to win it. You had Edgar Martinez, who was arguably the best pure right-handed power hitter. It was a team of superstars. A team... Remember how the, 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 the guys from the, the Miami Heat showed up when, they, when LeBron was there, and they, they came up on that platform kind of all boogieing and dancing and everything, like we got these three superstars in their prime? That's what the Mariners were. The Mariners were a bunch of Hall of Fame-bound superstars in their prime. And if that team had won the World Series, I'll say it. 
Griffey Jr. would be able to look his dad in the face and say, yeah, I played on a superstar-laden team as well. The Big Red Machine is remembered for being a great team. They won the World Series, and you took a look at the superstars who were there at the same time. Rose, Bench, Perez, Morgan, all Hall of Famers or Hall of Fame quality, let's face it. And Griffey Jr., A-Rod, Randy Johnson, Edgar Martinez, all playing at their peak at the same time in a year which has a vacuum for the world championship, and they would have all had their rings fitted right then and there. How would A-Rod's career have been different if he had won the World Series in Seattle? How would, Gri would Griffey Jr. had left? Would A-Rod have left? And even if they did, they would have given the people of Seattle a championship and said, yeah, we saw some of the great players of all time in their prime win a championship together at the same time. That's why I say 97. The 1997 Mariners, who lost in four games in the division series and have been forgotten by history, would have been remembered as a great superstar-filled team. Oh, but Sully, the Orioles had the better record than them. They weren't even the best regular season team. Shut up. Just shut up. When you look at the win totals of some of the Oakland A's teams, of the 1970s. They weren't winning 100 games a year. They weren't putting up you know, win totals in the regular season that would make your eyes pop up. But they were a superstar-filled team with Jackson, with Joe Rudy, with Raleigh Fingers and Catfish Hunter. Those teams that are filled with stars that win are good for baseball. And when there are teams that are filled with stars who are not from a big market, the way the Pirates did in the 70s, the way the A's and the Reds did in the 70s, it would have been a throwback to the 70s that you have a team like that winning in Seattle. It would have been a great thing. Instead, we got the Marlins. And good for the Marlins. They deserved it. They worked at it. Those players earned it. And you got players like Moises Alou and Kevin Brown getting their well-deserved rings. La-di-da-di-da-di-da-di-da. I wanted a Mariner title. So that's the team that should have won. The 1997 Seattle Mariners. So if you want me to cover a team that should have won, send me something via Twitter. And if you like the In Memoriam videos, please share it because... I really, really love working on them, and I try to put a lot of care into them. So go to sullybaseball.com, like me on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram, I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. Enjoy the All-Star Game. This has been the Sully Baseball Daily Podcast. I'm watching my cousin Jack, and you can call me Sully.